The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Turn our attention this morning to 2 Samuel chapter 2 and to an event that we have awaited a long time. Finally, we find the beginning of the kingdom of David. This started a long time ago, back in David's early teenage years. The Lord came and visited him through the prophet Samuel and anointed him, marking him out as king over his people Israel. He was a young teenager then. But he picked him out and said, You will be the one who will rule in the name of the Lord and in the power of the Lord over the people of the Lord for the agenda and the glory of the Lord. That's you. He put his hand on him and anointed him. And that promise then, at first it was in private, but it became known throughout all the land, this great promise or, or threat, depending on your perspective. To Saul, it was a great threat. Saul was the first one who was set up as king, but he rejected the Lord and turned away from him, and so the Lord withdrew from him and instead poured out judgment on him, and he knew all along for years and years that this coming one is my replacement, and it was a threat, and he opposed him forever, but now Saul is dead, removed by God. As we saw last week, the beginning of chapter 1, there's a real sense in which that is a tragic thing. Saul's death was, it it was a glorious thing because of what God's going to do with it and replace him with David. But it was a tragic thing because of how God had used Saul and his son Jonathan to protect and to provide for the people of God. He had used him as as a sword and shield for his people and now without these leaders, without these king and prince dead, the people are left vulnerable and weak. It's a loss. And so last week's passage struck the tone of lament, of sorrow. And we should look at the people of God in this condition and we should mourn with them and lament. Even while knowing that God is doing good in those those sorrows. David's now 30 years old. And it's taken a long time for the kingdom of David to come, as was promised. But it has finally come come in this chapter today. Not in its fullness, not in its fullest expression. There's, the kingdom has come, but there's still room enough for another kingdom to, to come and to exist and, and to call forth a choice between these two kingdoms. So we see in the passage is, is finally David's kingdom's come, and we need to choose to embrace it. That's what we're going to consider this morning. Let me read chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Then I'll pass back through it to make sure that we've understood the details before making a couple of overarching observations. This is 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1. After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, every one with his household, 
and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When they told David, it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord, because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul your Lord is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim, and he made him king over Gilead, and the Asherites, and Jezreel, and Ephraim, and Benjamin, and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was forty years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. The word of the Lord in Second Samuel. The passage begins with an after this, that is, after the, the news of the death of Saul and the mournful response. After this, hearing that, isn't it just plain obvious what the next step should be? Isn't it obvious to everybody? David's open door right here. Go walk through it. But David does not stand up and walk through the open door. He sits down and goes and asks the Lord, what should I do? He inquires of the Lord, asking two questions, making double clear that he does not have an agenda, he does not have an idea that he's been working on for years and years and years, and now's a chance to do it. He makes very clear I'm coming to you, God. What should I do? And he asks him first, should I go up? Yes. Okay. Well, then to where should I go up? The Lord answers both cases and says, go to Hebron, which is not David's hometown. He's from Bethlehem. But he moves to Hebron, which is the point of saying that he goes with his wives and men, all of their families, They're not just traveling there. They're not by no means making a raid there. They are moving back into the land to Hebron. Which in one sense makes sense because Hebron's an important city. It it and its surrounding villages, it was the major city of the the tribal land of Judah, so that makes some sense. It would be a nice place to start a kingdom. But symbolically it's important as well because in this town... This is the place where all the patriarchs and most of their wives are buried, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their wives. Way back in the beginning, when the land was promised to Abraham and to his offspring after him, the only bit of the the promise that he ever held was this little piece of land, this field, and this cave in which they're buried. The only place that he possessed from all that was he saw it with his eyes, he traveled to and fro and saw it all. And the only place that he was promised was right here, this little bitty place in which they put their bones. They possessed one little bit of it in their death. And to there, God sends David. David asks, where should I go? And he says, go there. 
I'm going to send you there, and we're going to start the kingdom there. I'm fulfilling my promise. I told Abraham he'd have all of this. I gave him that little piece. We're going to go right back there and start from there. He sends him home to Hebron. There the men of Judah came, and they anointed David king over the house of Judah. Everyone's heard about this. Everyone's known it was coming, and now it finally does. That's the first section. ends with David being king. And the second section, which also ends with David being king in verse 7, and the third section, which also ends with David as king in verse 11, emphasizing David is king. The second section begins with him interacting with these men from Jabesh Gilead. We've heard about them before. And he hears now they are the ones who buried Saul. And he responds to them by sending messengers. They were the brave men. You'll, you'll recall Saul, when he was killed in battle, the Philistines took him, cut off his head, and hung up his body on the city wall in shame and humiliation. And Jabesh Gilead, because of their love for him, how God had used Saul to save them years and years and years before, they went all night, ten miles one way, ten miles back in the dark, to get his body, bring him back, and bury him. David speaks to them and commends them for it. Rather than being jealous or taking some sort of vengeance against these men, he pronounces a blessing on them. Blessed be you for doing this, for this loyalty that you showed to the Lord's anointed. Last chapter, I killed a guy who said he'd killed the Lord's anointed. Here I commend you for defending and protecting the Lord's anointed. You showed steadfast love. It says loyalty, but the word is the same word as in the next phrase about God. Steadfast love to Saul. Now may the Lord show steadfast love to you and faithfulness to you, and I will show good to you for your loyalty to the Lord's anointed. Now, because I have wished you and promised you to do you good, now therefore be strong in hand and strong of heart. Verse 7. Have a strong heart and be strong in hand. Because you face a difficult choice. Saul, your Lord is dead and I'm king. He's calling them. He's calling them to give allegiance to the new king. A difficult choice for them. Judah is in the south. It's a large tribe, but it's in the south. And Jabesh Gilead is across the river and to the north, far away. A lot of land between them, a lot of Saulite land between them. But he's calling them to loyalty to the new kingdom. And we don't know how they respond. It's just left there. And then we get the third section, a one of contrast. But Abner set up another kingdom. Saul, your Lord, is dead, and Judah has anointed me king over them, and Abner set up the line of Saul again. See the structure of the chapter. Kingdom, kingdom, and Jabesh Gilead making a choice in the middle. We don't know how Abner and the son of Saul, Ishbosheth, we don't know how they escaped the battle. Saul and his three sons and his bodyguard, they were all killed. So somehow the commander of the army and one of his sons got away. We don't know, but they did. And Abner plays kingmaker, where David inquired of the Lord and asked him, what should I do and where should I go? Abner doesn't do any such thing. He just takes, it says he takes one of the sons of Saul 
and brought him over across the river to Mahanaim. The emphasis falls on Abner and what Abner did in Abner's wisdom and in Abner's power. He made a king. Even though he knows quite well that David's the one who's supposed to reign. He takes this Saulite and he goes to the place, you can read about this in Genesis 32, where Jacob, on his way back to the land to meet his brother Esau, Jacob stops at this place and God comes to him in a vision and he says, this is the camp of the Lord. And he names this place Mahanaim, which literally means two camps. He does not mean that negatively back in Genesis, but it has a negative connotation here. You've got one king raised up, and then you've got Abner who takes somebody over to the place of two camps and makes another kingdom. And this king reigned over Gilead, the area of Jabesh Gilead, and then working north to south over all of Israel. Big kingdom. But it was not the kingdom of the Lord and only lasted two years. That's the passage. We're left with two camps and a call in the middle. So we're going to look at that. I'm going to make two observations. Here's the first one. God's kingdom is built upon dependence on God. God's kingdom is built upon dependence on God. One thread that runs all through God's kingdom, we see here in this passage, but it's everywhere in the Bible, everywhere you read about it, everywhere you think about it, a thread that runs through God's kingdom is that it is God's. That may appear abundantly obvious, but I would suggest that we miss that often. God's kingdom belongs to God. It's his idea. He starts it. He directs it. He empowers it. He gives it directions and goals, agenda. He holds the responsibility for it. He moves it forward. All through, God's kingdom is the godness of the kingdom. The kingdom is, is completely, utterly Godward in orientation. It is Godward then in dependence. See, right there in verse 1, everybody knows what's supposed to happen next. Humanly speaking, this is completely obvious. David's going to go home and become king. And David himself knows the promises, and, and he knows the general direction this whole thing's moving. But he stops. And he asks God. He, he does not presume to know exactly what and exactly when and exactly where he should go. He probably has some idea about it, but he stops and he asks, should I go up and then even to where? And that, the fact that he asks, most of us would not have bothered to ask. We would have already known the answer. And then he asks twice, okay, yet to go where? I mean, there's one obvious place. Go to the main city. He asks twice further emphasizing his dependence on God. But the kicker is the contrast with Abner. You have one kingdom that's begun with a man stopping to sit and ask the Lord independence, and one with a man who takes it upon himself to make a king in rejection of God. You clearly see this is a, a, 
a king with a kingdom that depends on God. And this is a king that is the idea of man in the power of man for the agenda of man. It is not the Lord's kingdom and it will fail. Laid at the very bottom of this house of God is this question, Lord, what do you want? What should I do? I will listen and I will obey. Dependence on God. And the one who is qualified to reign in God's kingdom as the king beneath the king is the dependent one. So we have, I'm working layers here, we have the kingdom is about dependence and the one who is qualified to reign in the kingdom is the supremely dependent one. David shows something about himself here. David and not Saul. Saul was the one who showed himself consistently committed to his own kingdom and his own ideas and protection of himself. And David, opposite of that, says, what do you want? I will do it. David, not Saul, and not anybody who Abner would set up after him. The kingdom is built on dependence on God and built upon the one who is dependent on God, who looks to him and does only what his father says. Right there, right there, this is going somewhere. You've got a kingdom that's about dependence on God, and you've got a ruler in a kingdom who is dependent on God. Who does that make us think about? The kingdom of God, I'm backing up here a second, the kingdom of God is God's. And the one who is qualified to reign in the kingdom and exercise the authority of God in that kingdom is the one who supremely says, not my will, but yours, Father, be done. Who is that? David sort of. David sort of. Like with so many things, we look at David and we cheer, and then we keep reading and we'll groan. David does remarkably, uniquely show us a Godward heart. He has a heart after God, and he depends on Him, but not consistently and not perfectly. There's only one, only one, who, sh- who ruled in God's kingdom with Godward dependence that is so critical. There's only one. His name's Jesus. God marked him out as the one on whom we are to depend. He's the supremely dependent one, the one entitled to rule, the one properly given charge in the kingdom. It's appropriate that we depend on that king. Appropriate. And I want to say that I want to underline appropriate and and right and not in any sense whatsoever draw back from duty. He's a king who with his full dependence on God shows that he has the right to give command. It is appropriate that we depend on him. But, so not, not trying to undermine that or withdraw from that or anything, but I want to say there's something better than that. Think here about this. It is appropriate 
that God's kingdom be about God and that the subjects of God's kingdom depend on God and on God's dependent one, his king. It's appropriate, but it is also something, there's also something precious here. Engage with this here with me. Men and women, think here about something. That, that there is a requirement that is also a privilege. A privilege. David knows what is supposed to happen, but he does not presume to know every single step in every single properly ordered timing. Surely he knows that there is a way that seems right to men, but in the end leads to death and destruction. And so he stops and says, Lord, what should I do? Which is right and is a glorious privilege that on the other end of that there is a God who wants to be talked to and who will respond and who will lead, who is not just saying that we live in a kingdom which dependence is right and not just that there is a dependent ruler, but we have a God who is dependable. Precious. Men and women, precious is that truth. We are finite and limited in knowledge and limited in ability. What a precious reality it is that we have a king who knows all and is willing and in fact eager on the other side of our cry to speak and to respond and to lead us into good. Precious privilege it is to depend on God. Required, precious, people do not engage with this dispassionately. Do you realize how frail and how weak and how, I don't mean this insultingly, ignorant you are? I don't mean that insultingly. I don't. Ignorant. We know nothing about tomorrow. Not a thing. You think the sun will come up. The odds are high that it will. You don't know that for sure. You think, you, you presume that you will know that you will go to this city and you will conduct business there and so on and so on. You don't know anything and you can't make anything happen. Precious it is that you have a God who says, come to me, talk to me, depend on me. I will have you. Faithfully I will hold you. Precious privilege it is that the kingdom is not just about the duty of depending. It does not just have a king who himself is dependent, but it has a God at the bottom who is dependable, who calls you to lean on him. What a privilege. What a privilege. The only reason you don't think it is is that you don't understand yourself. You think too highly. You think that you have great capability. You have nothing. But you have a God who is everything. And you are most fortunate because of that. He is strong. And He will not leave you in weakness to perish. We set up a kingdom. We, can, we proceed down a path and the rain falls and the wind blows and the waves rise and everything washes away. And you have a strong God who will not abandon you in the weakness to perish. Privilege. Precious. He is wise and He will not leave you in ignorance to wander. 
He is good and He will not abandon you to evil for your destruction. What a God. He commands you and He calls you and He offers you a great privilege to come to Him, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and find faithful rest in Him. It's precious. It's precious. All you who are tired and worn and confused and lost and weak and in need, and all of you who don't think any of that applies to you. Yet, privilege. This is the kingdom that He designed, and we are the kinds of people that He designed. People who are frail, who are finite, and who are in need. And He makes Himself available to us and calls us to come and to lean on Him and to ask Him for guidance and protection, for wisdom. He set it up like that because ultimately you do not, you do not supremely, you do not highest, your highest need is not wisdom and guidance and protection. I, it would be marvelous if you could answer this question accurately. What is your highest need? God. Is that your answer? God is your highest need. And He made you dependent on Him to show you, to deliver Himself. Look, come to Me and find not... I do not leave it over here for you to find guidance. I attach it to My chest so that you will not find it anywhere else until you come to Me. And when you come here and find it, what have you found? You also found Me. What you really need the deepest blessing of your heart, not the guidance of should I go to Judah or not, yes or no. You found God. He designed it all like that to bring you to the one that you need and then to exalt Himself to show Him as the meter of needs. A glorious, dependable, providing, heart-filling, protecting, loving, faithful, good God. To the glory of God the Father and for the good of you as people and to testify to the nations about where hope is really found. What an awesome kingdom this is. Seize upon it for your own good. Dependence is the center of this kingdom. And a dependent one rules it. And a dependable God is, is at the bottom of it. Seize upon it. This kingdom and this dependable God. What a marvelous kingdom. A faithful God who never leads us astray, never leads us and abandons us. So I, I call to you, I challenge you, I commend to you, Depend on this God. He is good. What do I mean by that? Depend on this God. Well, first I mean an attitude. First, that's an attitude. There are some actions, but first it is an attitude. It is something inside of you that says, I need. It is appropriate and I need it. There's an attitude there of humility versus pride. 
I wonder why the Bible says repeatedly, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. It does say that repeatedly. There's an attitude there of humility that I'm calling you first to an attitude that says, I need him. I need him and I need what he does. There's an attitude there that then will be reflected in a couple of things. So let me, let me throw out just a couple of quick points to ponder. Dependence in a Christian's life, day in, day out, first is about communion with God. I'll throw out just Bible and prayer. Dependence on God, this asking, this looking to Him, this leaning on Him, is first about Bible and prayer. There is nothing that follows on after that if that is not included first. It is the, the regular way that he speaks and communes with us. Ordinary means, the old saints used to call them. You cannot realistically be thinking, I'm depending on God, I just never read his word or pray. No. It starts there. But I think then, I would encourage you to look at two other categories and think about them differently. First, specific decisions, particularly decisions of crisis. Dependence on God often shows up and often is most necessary in a decision point of crisis. I heard this last week of somebody who was in a... Uh, a I'll try to be somewhat vague here a relational situation that is unbiblical that I think previous to this to the relationship developing the person would have said I agree that's unbiblical but emotions get involved and time moves on and now here the person is dependence on God right there must be asked and must be sought. Must be asked but must be sought. Because the person, you, you can't say, I, I'm resisting God's clear will here while depending on Him. It's not true. But you, but you need to depend on Him to find the strength to get out of that. So look, what I'm saying is look into situations of, of decision that kind of circle often around crisis or difficulty and ask, am I independent of God and must I turn back to dependence on God to move from here so look in situations of, of crisis around particular decisions Lord what do you want me to do I, I'm getting familiar with that as I'm reading your word and praying talking to other Christians who are reading your word and praying Third category, let me just throw out there for you to consider briefly, is the non-specific, non-crisis, non-decision arenas of life. I think often we live independently, totally unaware that we are living independently. People pursuing relationships or jobs, let me pick one thing in particular, 
which if it applies directly to you, I have, I have not thought of anybody directly. It is the American way to work, save towards retirement, which retirement then often is defined as I'm going to spend as much time as I can on a beach or in a motorhome. That's common. Never realizing that means detached from the local body, unplugged from the work of God in this world, pleasing myself for the next 20 years. Didn't actually write that on the end of that. Now, I'm not speaking, I know there are some, some people here that, that kind of comes a little close to. I'm, I'm open for defenses. I'm not trying to skewer anybody in particular. I'm talking about the American way. Try to reject that that's the American way. That's the American way. I'll work till I can retire, and then I will enjoy it. Is that dependent on God? Is it? Now, there's no particular decision, no particular crisis. That's just a path over decades that we never stop and ask about. Is that what God would have for His people? Ask. Stop and ask. Sit down and say, Lord, what should I do? You are the King and you are, you are a God who will not only inform me about the path, but as you interact with me, you draw me to you and in fellowship with you, I am I'm gripped by one, not just an idea, but gripped by one who becomes Im- immensely compelling to me and calls me into something else. Go to Him, meet Him, and find Him and ask, what should I do? You may find specific answers or you may find a relationship that changes how you look at everything. So there are a couple of little things there which perhaps in discussions with folks at your gospel community or in a Bible study or something you need to kind of tease out to think about dependence in your own life. But, but I, before closing off this point, I have to hold up to you a warning. Watch for the tendency. In, in all of that, what I'm saying there is watch for the tendency to live like Abner. You need to be aware of something. There are always two camps. There are two kingdoms in the world. Always. Until dramatically at the end, there isn't. But there are two kingdoms, two camps in the world from start all the way to the finish. Those camps live out there. Those camps live in your own heart. If you're a Christian, the kingdom of God is within and the kingdom of man, the kingdom of the world, is within. And it's warring inside of you. And there is a a strong and continuing lure. Sometimes it's a shout. Sometimes it's a whisper. A quiet invitation. To give allegiance to another king even though you know better. Abner knew better. We'll come to this later. But if you look over at chapter 3, verse 9, this is tragic. But I would suggest to you, we Christians are not that far from this. This is, I won't bother with all the context. This is Abner in, in conflict with Ishbosheth later. God do so to Abner. This is Abner speaking. 
And more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him. Abner knew the Lord had promised the throne to David. And he said, but I don't want that one. I'm going to make another one. That's hard. That lives, those two things live inside of each of us. They are out there in the world everywhere. And so I I warn you here, we're talking about a kingdom with a good God who is dependable, but there is another kingdom right alongside of it always and isn't going anywhere until the end when it is finally put down. There is a lure in you. There is a lure all around you, an invitation to give allegiance to another kingdom, one built with your own hands. Watch out for it. That kingdom perishes. This one is real. Christ is the king of it. The supremely dependent and the supremely dependable one. There's a struggle and you have to give allegiance to that kingdom. How? How does God draw you to that kingdom? That leads us to the second point. So the first point was that God's kingdom is built upon dependence. And the, sec- and the second point is God's kingdom is built by promise of marvelous grace. God's kingdom is built by, it is increased by, expanded by promise of marvelous grace. We see this in the middle in verses 4 to 7 where David hears about Jabesh Gilead and he sends a message to them and realize, as we've said, that message has a purpose. It's not just to give them a high five. Nice going. It's to call for their allegiance. Verse 7. Now therefore, let your hands be strong and valiant. Literally, let your hands be strong and be strong of heart because you face a big boy decision here. You did well. You did well to give loyalty to the Lord's anointed. And I'm calling you to give loyalty to the Lord's anointed. And that's going to be hard for you. He recognizes that, I mean, physically here on the page, you're stuck in the middle. And historically, geographically, what does Abner do but take This one, he doesn't anoint him king wherever they are. He takes them across the river and to the north, arriving in the neighborhood of Jabesh Gilead and anoints him king in Gilead. David's calling out, I'm the anointed, but I'm way down here in the south and you are men of, you are Saul's guys. And now I know Saul's general has anointed Saul's son king in your own neighborhood and over all of this great big vast community of Israel, and it's a kingdom with which you are familiar, but Saul, your Lord, is dead, and to stay in his camp puts you on Mount Gilboa. Make a tough decision here. Be strong and courageous. He's calling out for their allegiance. And how does he call? What kind of message is it? Is it a threat of destruction if they resist? important to note this. 
Is it a threat? No, not primarily. And I say not primarily because there is something that we can't overlook there. Subtle, yet sober warning in that Saul, your Lord, is dead. Because we all know why he's dead, and we all know how he died. He died under the hand of God's judgment. There's a warning there. To stay in his camp puts you on the opposite side of God. So there's a warning. We need to be clear about that. But that's not what's emphasized. The, the emphasis in the message that David sends to call them is one of promise of good from the king and of steadfast love and faithfulness from God Himself. He says in 5 and 6, You did well to show steadfast love to Saul. And understand, God's not just commending your steadfast love. It's to Saul, the Lord's anointed. Because that's the kind of people that you are, those who give steadfast love to the Lord's anointed, you will find steadfast love and faithfulness and good from Me the Lord's anointed. He's calling them to Himself with words of good promise, not threat. That's the nature of the message from David that builds the kingdom. Promise of marvelous, good, loving grace. Understand that. There, there's these two kingdoms here. There's there's. One that stands and one that falls. And in the middle, we are constantly torn in, in allegiances. And God calls out and says, give allegiance to this one. And how He appeals to you is by promise of good grace. You will find from God Himself steadfast love and faithfulness. And from God's dependent King, good Saul always dies. But in this kingdom you find blessing, marvelous grace forevermore. That is how he speaks to build his kingdom. An awareness that there's a day coming in which there is a judgment, but in the time here and now the appeal comes out from the king, come to me, and it is an appeal that is shot through with promise of good. It's how he calls people initially, it's how he calls for the, the first allegiance for those who are outside of God's kingdom and resistant to him, he lays out in front of them a promise of life. Is that you today? Are you outside of the kingdom? What I mean by that, are you sitting on the outside looking at Jesus, looking at the church, whatever it is, however you put that, looking from the outside and saying, I don't know about that. Well, in the back I need to point out there is a reckoning, but right on the front burner there is a promise. Marvelous, good, faithful, loving, gracious promise. 
is how this king commends, commands, offers himself and his kingdom to you. There isn't any reason on earth to choose against this kingdom other than you simply don't want it. Think about that. Every good that you can imagine, and I don't mean every half good, every earth-stained, quasi-decent good, I mean good in the fullness. Every good that you can imagine, every good that your heart seeks and longs for, promised to you in this kingdom from this king. And the amazing, alarming thing is that some sit here, I, I don't know, you, 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 but some sit here or some hear this later and say, not for me, I'd rather go my own way. The tragedy of that. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Your own way? You have no idea where your own way leads. God has told you where your way leads. There is a path that seems wise to man and it leads to destruction. And there's a God who says, come to me and I will give you rest and life. I will give you myself. I am the embodiment of good and you will find it here. Come. Now you've got to let go of everything to come. But what you have held in your hands is dust running through your fingers anyway. Come find life. And ask yourself why you don't want to do it. Why? There's no good reason. Surrender everything and come to Him. And He promises you life. That's how He wins allegiance of people. And Christian, that's how He builds His kingdom in your life too. By, by His kingdom, I mean the, the spread of His reign, the spread of to use the first point, the spread of his influence on you so that you depend on him more, his kingdom spreading in your own heart. He does it the very same way by promising you truckloads of gracious good. Christian, you understand what's going on in our lives, in us, when we sin, what's going on is a grand deception. Do you want to look at it differently? A tragic overlooking of reality. Somebody whispered something to you and you actually believed, ah, there is more good found in this sin than there is under the reign of God. You believed that and you walked in it. That's false. And how he calls you out of that and back to dependence on him is not with a high hand raised to strike you. Christian. Christian. He's loved you with a vast, wide, long, high, deep love. He does good to you. He smiles on you constantly from sunup to sundown every day of your life for eternity. He loves you passionately and deeply. 
He does not have a hand raised high over you. That does not mean he doesn't spank you. Those of us who are parents understand spanking and love can go together. In our human fallenness, spanking and hate, beating and hate often go together too in our sin, not in God. He will discipline us in, in love. That, that is true. But we got something in our minds. Sometimes Christians, I talk to some Christians, we got something in our minds that there is, there is the God teeth, hand, and you're a Christian, you're cringing under that. So you think, I better get my act in line. Throw that away. Throw it away. That's beneath him. He greatly, deeply wants you to depend on him. And how he draws that dependence, that kingdom loyalty out of you, fastening to you, is to throw out in front of you promise after gracious promise, blessing after blessing, and say, here, come, look, find, eat, taste. I am good here. This is the language of, of, of this your king. And when you find yourself caught in sin, or when you've examined the particular decision of crisis or the whole pattern of life that you've never thought about, and you find, I'm actually not living dependent on God right here. What calls you back to dependence is to say, what good has God promised me back in the center of the kingdom? And to find it in the promises of God and to believe it and embrace it and run. That's the mechanism by which he works on his people to build his kingdom ever increasingly in you and around you until he finally comes and crushes the other kingdom. So brother or sister, ask yourself, are you walking independently? Maybe it's in the fact that the disciplines, the the Scripture and prayer are growing stale in your life. Maybe it's in some particular crisis, some decision. Maybe it's in just a pattern of life. Are you walking independently? Then look to the promises of goodness that He lays out in front of you and come back. He's a good God. He is a kingdom. He is a king. He requires dependence and offers to you His dependable self full of grace for you. Let's pray. Lord, we are in need of You to, to grab our attention. Some of us here probably, well, I don't know everybody here, but some of us here don't know You at all. Would you awaken, would you awaken hearts? We'll awaken them to the reality of a kingdom that is coming to crush all other kingdoms.
them aware of that reality, but show them the goodness of this kingdom and draw them in kindness, lead them to repentance. And Lord, most of us here in the room, we are your people. We are already subjects of yours. Gloriously, we are subjects that you do not rule with an iron hand, with a, with a fist. But you want to rule. It's right. It's good. So call us to allegiance. Move us towards allegiance. Not just make, make a verbal call, but actually move us to deeper dependence, loyalty, Some here, Lord, I, I expect some of your people here deal very lightly with you and wonder what all the fuss was about here. Show them more. Show them more of you that, that can be had. Open their minds, open their hearts. Bring conviction where necessary. Move us as a whole, move us on beyond the shallows. Lord, swimming in, in deep water is hard, but it's, it's better. There's more down there. Draw us out. Draw us down. Lead us to know you to walk after you, leaning on you and finding more and more and more of you. As we take in our hands the, the elements of the, of the communion now, Lord, would you remind us again of this dependent king who said in, in, at the end, not my will but yours be done and laid down his life to plant the kingdom to make it grow. Remind us, call us to deeper faith. Meet with us now, I pray. Thank you, Lord. Amen. We now move to the celebration of Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.